kind of move on through here and just do everything we need to do. And singing's great. Uh, <coughs> you know, I tell you, I'm going to try to get through this with my 106 temperature this morning, but it'll be okay. Now, last week, you know, I got a, I'll have them here probably Thursday night, but I got these uh, thermonuclear thermostat temperature things you put up to their forehead, you know, I've been doing everybody, I'm doing, going to check everybody's temperature coming in. And uh, I love it because you can set it and it's got an alarm on it. And when you over temperature wise, a big red light starts flashing and it comes on and you can set that just to do it. And I have fun going up to people, putting it up to the forehead and the red light going off and the siren going off. You got to see their faces, you know, and I tell them they got to go home. But anyway, <clears throat> we'll uh, hopefully have those by uh, Thursday and start that process. Now, last time we were together, it wasn't last week, it was the week before last, uh, we saw a picture uh, coming through chapter 30. Uh, we saw a picture of the Jew in the tribulation, and it was illustrated, if you remember, by four little things that uh, are on the earth. And in the world system, you're going to find that the, uh, the nation of Israel uh, will always be portrayed as somebody that's small, feeble, weak, and uh, you'll see this, in, the greatest example of this is in Matthew chapter 5 through 10, where he uh, preaches what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about there the nation of Israel uh, being needy, poor in spirit, uh, and they're always portrayed, you know, weak uh, because they're under the oppression of the Gentile nations, and they're literally nothing now compared to what God wanted them to be. We saw this uh, the last time we were together because of God's divorcing his wife Israel and turning uh, the world over to the Gentiles. And we know that to be what is known as the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles run from about 606 B.C. Uh, with the demise of the nation of Israel up and through the times that we are in right now on into the tribulation and then end at the second coming of Christ. And the, probably the greatest chapter in the Bible of showing you how this thing uh, really fell apart in 606 would be Psalm 78. And it clearly says there that God now has taken the crown from the nation of Israel. Yet in the tribulation period, the Jew, and this is the context of what we're looking at, the Jew finds something that, though weak as they are portrayed, will get them through and make them a strong nation again. And you'll want to notice that when we looked the last, the last time together, it said they were little, but they were exceedingly wise. And uh, what they get that gets them through, what they find that is what gets them and sustains them is uh, the wisdom of God. And the book of Proverbs is that book of wisdom. Now, you know, from a practical standpoint, <clears throat> that's a great lesson and a principle in itself for us as Christians in, in the New Testament. Uh, basically, the, the weaker we are to ourselves, the stronger we are to the Lord. You know, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8, when he was speaking to uh, Zerubbabel, he said, Not by might nor power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. You know, that was Israel's, one of their fundamental problems that got him into trouble. 
You remember back in the Old Testament, David numbered the people. And uh, the nation of Israel received a great plague uh, because of that and some real serious problems. And most people, when they see that, they don't really understand how just numbering the people. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've got my census thing in that they want to know, you know, how many people in my family, and they, they want to know in the country how many people are living here, which is just topped about uh, seven, uh, you know, uh, we're up there in the millions. So uh, about 230 million in America. So, you know, what's the deal with that? Well, for the nation of Israel, them numbering the people was a display of their not trusting in God and trusting in their numbers. And, uh, you know, God never wanted them to rely on a great army. God wanted them to rely on his wisdom. And, of course, uh, we see that. And it's so true of us today, too. The weaker we are to ourselves, the stronger we are to God. And I said this a couple of weeks ago. Somebody gave me this a couple of weeks ago, which I think is very profound. You want to remember that we're at our best for God when you're not trying to be anything. And that is so true, and that is a great piece of advice. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says that in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. And uh, always through the wisdom and understanding of God and his word, uh, and you become principled in those things, in a principled life, it, it really, it, so there's a practical side to this too, as there is the, everything in the Bible. But for the Jews... Going back to them now, surviving the tribulation will not be by their own power or ability or strength, but they're getting uh, the wisdom of God to follow uh, and to survive. Right now, the nation of Israel probably has a very small army. Uh, they are, uh, in fact, in Israel, uh, everybody, every citizen is... Uh, part of the army and they're, they're men women you know everybody girls teenagers and uh, uh, they it could be called up at any time and they've had to do that because how many times they have been attacked and they have been attacked as I showed you several weeks ago uh, four or five times down through history in major wars and they've always won them and that is because that the mili the Israeli military as small as they are is unbelievable in their execution. Their special forces group uh, is, uh, is, is better than anybody on this planet. I know we have our special forces and the Navy SEALs, but the, uh, but the uh, Israeli commandos, there's nobody in the world like them. One of the greatest things you'll ever study, and one of these times I want to show the movie here and we can all watch it together, is called Radon and Tebby when uh, the uh, Palestinian terrorists hijacked a, a TWA flight and took it to Uganda and for the purpose of killing all the Jews on it. And there was like, I don't know, uh, 200 Jews on it. They sent the Americans on their way or the foreigners on their way but kept the Jews as hostage and was going to kill them. Now, Uganda is down in South Africa, a long way from Israel. And yet... Uh, they, the, the, the military leaders in Israel sat down and put together a plan with their commandos and, uh, to rescue those people. And they, it was one, in, in military history, it was probably the greatest single 
military covert operation, and they rescued every one of those people. There were a few that were killed in the crossfire. One woman that they had had a heart attack two days before, they took to a hospital so they couldn't get her. But they got everybody out of there, wiped out all of the terrorists, wiped out all of the uh, Adi and the men's uh, guard, and uh, it was, the studied how they did it was one of the in, most incredible, but that's what the nation of Israel does. They're small. But even though they're a long way from God, you can still see God's hand in guiding them because God's going to bring them back, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. And uh, they're, they're quite incredible. And uh, they can get things done, and that's why nobody, that's why they're, they got a fingernail hold on, on, on Jerusalem. They don't even have all of Jerusalem. Where the temple is going to be built is now under Muslim domination, the, uh, you know, the Dome of the Rock. They don't have hardly anything, but they got God, and God is bringing them and restoring them in his own time, and he's protecting them. And even though they're small, <clears throat> and even though they're weak from the world's standpoint, as armies is concerned and governments are concerned, uh, they, uh, they're, they're quite incredible. So last week I showed you that the nation of Israel like four little small creatures. And each one, when we studied it, gave us a different aspect to the Jew going through the tribulation period. And, you know, I want to say a word about this. And this is the Greek key. In Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, he, Job tells us how important that the animals are and the things that God created are and how that they teach us things. And he says, But thou ask the beast, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and to the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Who knoweth not in all these things that the hand of God hath wrought this, and whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? That is one of the greatest set of verses that will open up for us some incredible understanding and incredible studies. And it's the key to so many things, simply studying the animals in the Bible. So we looked at, <clears throat> we looked at the ant, and we saw how that the ant was wise in her work, and I showed you how that that is a picture of the 144,000 that's going to do the work in the tribulation period, evangelizing the Gentiles. We looked at the, uh, the cooney, which is a rabbit or a hare, and how that uh, it's wise to, uh, in its ability to hide. And I showed you how that that's the Jew in the tribulation in, in the rock city, which is Silipetra. We talked about the locusts, <clears throat> and I told you that they represent the plagues in the tribulation, and how the nation of Israel has the wisdom of God to get through those things and to avoid them. And then we talked about the spider, <clears throat> and I showed you how that that's a picture of their wisdom to be able to take hold and hold on Endure unto the end, and the Bible says that they, they hold on to the covenant that God has given them, and that covenant is in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. And we saw how that these four little things that are weak and are small illustrate each of them an aspect of the nation of Israel. You know, by now, we should understand the outline of the book of Proverbs. Chapter 1 through chapter 7, and as I've told you many times, he, he illustrates that by uh, saying, my son, almost in every beginning of every chapter. And he's given him <coughs> advice and instructions on, on 
on what's going on in, the, in life around him and what he should do and what he should not do. And he does that for the first seven chapters. <clears throat> and then in chapter 8, all the way up to chapter 30, now we have the Proverbs themselves. So the Proverbs really don't start <clears throat> until chapter 8, and they end in chapter uh, and 30, where we're at today. And then, of course, you have the final chapter. That's chapter 31. <clears throat> and that shows the end result of where the nation of Israel uh, is going to wind up and in an inspirational application where we're going to wind up um, uh, once we get God's wisdom. And it's all dealing with the nation of Israel in a doctrinal sense, <clears throat> them going through the tribulation, uh, through the generation that we started with, and uh, getting restored back to God as the virtuous woman in a doctrinal sense. Now, <clears throat> chapter 30 has been an incredible breakdown for us of the tribulation and all of the things that, <clears throat> that we have seen fitting into the overall picture and giving us our understanding of what this time is really going to be like. And today, we're going to finish out chapter 30 and look at the last four things. And again, this is going to be three plus one. And the, the one plus one always kind of puts everything else into a context. Now, I'm going to read for you Proverbs chapter 30. We're going to pick it up in verse 29 and read it to the end of the chapter in verse 33. Here's what it says. There be three things which go well, yea, four are comely in going. A lion which is strongest among beasts and turneth not away for any. A greyhound... Uh, and a he-goat also, and a king against whom there is no rising up. If thou hast done foolishly in lifting up thyself, or if thou hast thought evil, lay thy hand upon thy mouth. Surely the churning of milk bringeth forth butter, and the wringing of the nose bringeth forth blood. So the forcing of wrath bringeth forth strife. Leland, would you ask God's blessing on this morning over there where you're at in the corner? Now, here again, we're just using our Bible. We're not going to any commentaries. We're not going to the Hebrew. <coughs> we wouldn't be going to the Greek unless we were the New Testament. We wouldn't be going there either. But uh, uh, allow me to show you how to simply unlock these verses here. You know, and what a great word simple, simply or simplicity is. You know, that's a word that most people would never equate to the Bible because men like to tell you that the Bible is really a hard book and, and, and you know, take hundreds of thousands of dollars out of your <clears throat> life to try to teach it to you because they think they know it when actually you can get a dollar Bible from Dollar General if it's a King James Bible and you can get everything you want out of it if you just follow a few basic, simple um, thing because the key word is simplicity. You know, over there in Second uh, Corinthians chapter eleven, this was Paul's fear for the church at Corinth, and of course he's speaking to all churches, and he was afraid <clears throat> that what was going to happen, that the devil was going to beguile the church from the simplicity that was in Christ Jesus, and boy, was that a 
was that a well-founded fear? Because that's exactly uh, what has happened. Uh, we <coughs> make the Bible today a hard book to understand when the key word, the watchword for the Bible would be simplicity. And any other way that you study the Bible other than God's way of laying it out makes it very complicated. But if you just follow the Bible itself, follow the natural things. Yesterday in Bible Institute, I gave them <coughs> some great verses on patterns and showed them the definitive passage in Hebrews, how that God is always working through patterns. You find the patterns, and it will open itself up to you. You know, one of the greatest studies that you'll ever take in the Bible will be a study of, of the mind of God. And, uh, you know, the mind of God is one of the greatest concepts uh, anywhere in the Bible. <clears throat> Somebody said one time years and years ago, and boy, I tell you, I, and I know that collectively the whole Bible is the mind of God. I get that. <clears throat> but somebody said years and years and years ago, when I was a young man just growing up, he, he talked about the uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all connected, but they each have a different job, and they each have a different mindset about their job. And he said, you know, he said, the, 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 the book of Saul of Solomon would be the mind of Christ. The book of Ecclesiastes would be the mind of the Spirit. And the book of Proverbs would be the mind of God. And there's no question about in that sense, when you get into the Proverbs, you're actually getting into the mind of God. When you get into the first seven chapters, you're getting into God's mind of this is what he's, the instructions that he's telling you. If you do this and don't do this, it's God's take on life. And then when you get into chapter 8 through chapter 30, uh, 30, uh, 30, he's given you his mind on every issue that you're ever going to face in life. It's one of the greatest studies in the Bible will be the mind of God. And, of course, uh, that will be in particular the book of Proverbs. And then we are told that to let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. And, of course, that is the mind of God. And it's an incredible study. Now, our last four things here <clears throat> will all deal with the Antichrist himself. And it's an incredible four key things about him. Now, so far in chapter 30, uh, a, ch a chapter that's got incredible insight into it, here's what we have seen. We have seen and defined the generation. We know that to be 1948, and that is the beginning of the last generation. We have defined the horse leech. We know that to be the Roman Catholic Church connected with the Antichrist. We, we have looked at the grave and uh, realized that during the tribulation, the grave will not be full. Many people are going to die. We looked at the, the barren woman, uh, barren Israel, the barren. And I showed you how that there are seven women in the Old Testament and the New Testament that picture barren Israel. We looked at the fact that there was no rain. And I showed you how that is James chapter 5 is the former and the latter rain that comes from Elijah. We looked at the eagle. And I took you back to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and showed you that represents God fluttering his wings uh, over his little nation of Israel. We talked about the rock city, Silopetra, a couple of times. We looked at the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. And we looked at Abraham and Hagar and how that, that brought about uh, the two things that the earth, the things that the earth will not bear. And then last time, uh, we looked at four pictures of the Jew, the ant, the cooney, 
the locust, and the spider. And lastly now, four things about the Antichrist himself uh, and uh, completing our study of the tribulation period, if you're paying attention, all in one chapter, chapter 30. All from a King James 1611 authorized version, all from just getting God's mind. Now, in your Bible, talking about the devil here, in your Bible, and you should already know this if you've been around here any length of time, there's four key chapters on the devil. And the, these would be the four definitive chapters on him. There's two in the Old Testament, Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. There's two in the New Testament, and that'll be Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Those four chapters will coincide together as far as the material is concerned and unlock uh, everything about him that you need to know. In Job chapter 40 and chapter 41, in Job chapter 40, uh, which primarily deals with the Antichrist, he's called the behemoth. In Job chapter 41, which predominantly he's pictured as the devil himself, he's called Leviathan. And of course, again, modern scholarship fails the test as every test and flunks with an F and goes home and has to repeat classes over and over and over again. When they go to Job chapter 40, which talks about behemoth, and a behemoth means composite monster, which when you get over to Revelation chapter 12 and 13, you see that's exactly what he is. But our, but our great scholarly minds and our great pastors and our great neo-evangelical mindset and all the Bible colleges, uh, they all will tell you that uh, they'll miss it completely that is talking about the Antichrist. And they'll tell you that the behemoth uh, is a hippopotamus uh, or maybe a, uh, a whale or an elephant. When you get into chapter 41 you'll find that the Leviathan, who is clearly defined in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, and Revelation chapter 12 and 13 as the devil. But oh, no, 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 no. They'll lay him out as a whale and a whirlpool. And of course, uh, nothing is more ridiculously stupid than modern scholarship when it comes to the Bible. And if you have an NIV out there, when you go to Job chapter 40 or 41, you will have that note in there telling you what these are, or what they aren't, really. And uh, it's just that crazy. In Revelation chapter 12 and 13, he's laid out as the beast, the false prophet, and then, of course, the Antichrist, which makes up for us the unholy trinity. Now, you know, the devil, and I've got to give you some of this before we get into these four things to look at here. The devil will be the greatest imitator of Christ uh, anywhere in the history of the world. And uh, most people don't know this because once you lose your Bible, then you lose any point of reference to figure out what's going on. But 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 through 15 tells us that uh, it says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel... For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, because what he just said, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. When it's all said and done, you will find that the devil transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, he has a minister, he has ministers, he has a church, he has a choir. 
He has a city, just like Christ does, and he has a, certainly has a Bible. And you're going to find that in Genesis chapter 3, when the devil, first time he shows up, law of first mention, he imitates God in every way, shape, or form. And he clearly says to Eve, Yea, hath God said, and then he conveniently changed what God said. And that is the pattern that you want to look for. The pattern is, is not how he looks, but what he says. If you put an NIV here and a King James Bible here, they both look like Bibles. The only way you find one's out of the pit of hell and the other one's out of the stands of heaven is by seeing what they say. If you've got a Bible like an NIV that makes the devil Christ, who in his right mind would want that? But they do. And of course, you know, I guess it just goes back to John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers ye shall do. But he imitates Christ in so many ways. For instance, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus Christ is called light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, the devil's called light. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 16, Christ is called king. In Job chapter 41, verse 24, the devil's called a king. In uh, Revelation chapter 21, Christ has a city that's a bride. And in Revelation chapter 17, the devil has a city and it's his wife. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, Christ is called the prince. And in John chapter 14, verse 30, the devil's called a prince. In John chapter 20, verse 20, Jesus Christ is called God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the devil's called God. You know, you're going to find that both ride white horses in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and the devil in Revelation 6, uh, verse 2. You'll both find that they both have a crown. Uh, you'll find that they both are called Christ. You'll find that they both quote Scripture. You'll find that they both have a Bible and a church. And, uh, you know, uh, they both have a trinity. God has God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, of course, the Antichrist has his unholy trinity that are likened to unclean frogs over there in the book of Revelation. A couple of Thursday nights ago, Somebody asked a question out of John chapter 17, verse 12, about the son of perdition. And I showed them how that it's only found three times in the Bible. John 17, uh, 2 Th uh, Thessalonians 2, 3, and then Revelation 17, I think it's 11. And I showed you how that uh, Judas is the Antichrist. And the Bible says, talking with the Antichrist, that it's a mystery. It's called the mystery of iniquity. And it's one of the seven mysteries that are given to the church. And uh, it, it, the mystery is, how in the world did this thing come down through the history of man and the history of the Bible? And I showed you that Judas is the Antichrist, and how from Genesis chapter 3, and then we moved up to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then into the tribulation, how the devil brought it all into this world and uh, through his master plan of deceiving the world from Cain Remember now, Cain is the first type of Antichrist in the Bible. Cain gets a mark. Cain kills his brethren like the Antichrist is going to do. Cain is of the wicked one over there in First in, in John. And then I took it up to Judas, and I showed you how that the Bible says in John 6, 70, Jesus said, Have I not chosen you twelve, talking about his apostles, that one of you is a devil, Judas. 
And then I linked that all the way into the man of sin, and I showed you the process by which that works. It was, you know, an incredible night uh, of laying out that truth and how it all works. And without question, the two main characters of the Bible, not only the Bible, but down through the history of man, will be, one, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then His Majesty, the devil. And all history will revolve around those two and a kingdom. One of them rightly deserves the kingdom and is going to get it. The other one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the other one wants to usurp the kingdom and he'll do everything in his power to get you as Christians, you as unsaved nations, to help him do it. And uh, honestly, this is why the devil hates the Bible. This is why the devil had to get rid of the King James Bible and get all of you idiots out there to believe that the new uh, NIV or the new King James Bible, the ASV, whatever it is, it's your choice, uh, was a better Bible than what uh, God gave us. Because in every one of those Bibles, the devil is able to do two things. He's able to destroy all the references that point to him, that lay out him who he is. And in every one of those Bibles, they make him Christ. And boy, that is so true. In the NIV, uh, in the New King James Bible, all of them take the preeminence in verses that simply mean are given to Christ, and they put the devil right in the middle of them. It's quite incredible. So incredible, it's hard to it's hard to believe how anybody with a brain could ever stand and not see that. But I understand what happens when you get educated outside your intelligence. So I get that pretty well. Now, at some point in your life, you'll want to take a study of the devil. And uh, he is the premier guy in the Bible outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you ought to learn about him and you ought to study about him. And I've come years and years and years ago, an easy way to do that. Uh, I'm always looking for the easy way in the Bible, and usually the easy way is God's way, which is the most simplistic way. And, uh, you know, I've read Clarence Larkin's book on the spirit world, and it, it's a good book, but it's very complicated. I've seen other guys' books on the devil and, and all that stuff, and it, it, I'm not downing them. They're, they're, it, they're okay, but it's not the easiest thing to put out by going through that. For me, I'm a very simple person. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not very smart. I'm not educated very much. I was in the sixth grade so long that the kids brought me the apple. They thought I was the teacher. I just, I, I, I'm not, I, you know, and my stupidity, my ignorance has really been an asset to me because I have learned early on that the dumber you are, the better off you are when it comes to learning the things of God. And so years ago, I... I was looking at this, and I went through Clarence Larkin's book on the spirit world and some of the other books, you know, and, and I got some good information. But I wanted a, as always, I wanted a systematic layout of it that would be biblical. And obviously, I've told you many, many times that the key to balance is the number three. And so, you know, I, you know, I, and so I, I, I simply found that the best way to study the devil is to realize and understand that the devil is kicked out of heaven three times. And if you want to study him, you just study each one of those times. 
And it, it, what it does, it divides it up, rightly dividing the word of truth, and gives you a component of studying it here, and then here, and then here, and then being able to bolt them all back together. Now, the first time he's kicked out is in Genesis chapter 1-1 and Genesis chapter 1-2. And here, the devil is kicked out positionally. He loses the covering cherub hat, and now he's no longer the cherub that covered the throne of God. Now he's called Lucifer and the devil, and he kicked out of heaven positionally. He loses his position. Now what he does is he becomes the accuser of the brethren. And from Genesis 1-2 up to the middle of the tribulation, he travels back and forth between heaven and earth, as we saw in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, and he becomes the accuser of the brethren before the throne of God. He still has access to go into heaven, but he lost his position the first time he's kicked out. Now, that'll take us from Genesis 1-2 all the way up to the middle of the tribulation period, which will be Revelation 12 and 13. So that's one way you want to study them. Oh, there's a lot of material. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. Man, there's a lot of stuff in that first kicking out positionally. But now <clears throat> he goes all the way up to Revelation 12 and 13. In Revelation chapter 12, at the end of the chapter, here he's kicked out the second time. And this time he's kicked out bodily, never to get back in again. And in Revelation chapter 12, toward the end of the chapter, you're given a warning, and you're told that Michael the archangel takes him and throws him out of heaven. And now in Revelation chapter 13, he shows up on earth as entering into the Antichrist, and the devil takes charge, just like he did when Judas betrayed the Lord to have him crucified. And the first time he's kicked out, he's kicked out positionally. The second time he's kicked out, he's kicked out bodily. Now, he runs the course <clears throat> of all the way through the tribulation period and then comes back out at the end of the millennium. But the third time that he's kicked out <clears throat> is Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and now he's kicked out eternally. And he never, never, never comes out of the bottomless pit ever again. So when you want to study, you break it down into three. He's kicked out positionally, he's kicked out bodily, and then he's kicked out eternally. And that's just the way you study it. It makes it a lot easier than going through Clarence Larkin's book and getting all that stuff. Though there's a lot of good stuff in it. Now our text today will lay him out in four ways. And again, we will unlock all of this by key words. Just getting into God's mind, Isaiah 55, verse 89, and seeing things the way he sees them. Now, our first key word here that I read will be in verse 29, and it says uh, that comely in going. And it'll be the word comely. And uh, it, verse, it says, yea, for our comely in going. So our first word is going to be comely. Now, comely means natural or suitable to be able to fit into something and take control. Somebody that is comely, we always think that they're homely looking. That's not really what it means. Comely means somebody that is unassuming but has the ability to pull people 
to follow him, to come along with him. Hence the word comely, to come along, see? And uh, it's, it's a man who gets people to come along with him and buy into what he's doing. That's what the word comely means. Now, in Job chapter 41, verse 12, going back to our, one of our great chapters, here's where you match up these key words. And it's a great verse on the devil and the Antichrist in the Old Testament. And it says in verse, it says in verse 12, talking about the devil, God speaking, says, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his, here it comes, comely proportion. See that? You match those two words up. Then in the next verse, 41.13, based on what he said in verse 12, he says this, who can discover the face of his garment? And of course, uh, this is completely destroyed in all of the new Bibles. Once you start reading it and they send you down the crocodile or the whirlpool or the elephant or the whale trail, uh, you're, you're lost. <clears throat> and uh, I want you to notice that in verse 12, there's three things that God says that he's going to reveal to us about him, the devil. And this is, again, why the devil hates, hates, hates this Bible. Now, the first, and again, notice it's three. Gives you a balance. <clears throat> The first thing will be his parts. The second thing will be his power. And the third thing will be his comely proportion. Now his parts will be the men down through history that he has used. And you will find recorded in the Bible that there's 18 of them in particular. And once we get into the New Testament, you'll find out that there are five of them that carry on into the New Testament. <clears throat> even though they're not recorded in the New... Well, one of them is. <clears throat> but then the other ones are after the New Testament closes, but all you got to do is look down through history and you see who they are. The power will be the nations that down through history he's used. And uh, he uses those nations, uh, that, and those nations are laid out for you very clearly in Daniel chapter 2, which ushers in the times of the Gentiles, and he uses those nations. The third thing is his comely proportion. This will be his religion. This will be how he persuades people to follow him. This is how he will persuade people to follow him. It'll through, be through religion and the comely proportion of getting people to come along with him. We know it as Baal worship in the Old Testament, and which all the nations followed, and we know it as Roman Catholicism in the New Testament, which all the world is following. And it's a thing where, uh, another key thing here, in Daniel chapter 1, notice comely proportion. We've already looked at the key word comely. Now look at the word proportion. In Daniel chapter 1, we have Daniel and the Hebrew children who are taken into captivity. And they go into captivity, this is the 606 captivity with Nebuchadnezzar, and they're taken down into Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is one of the types of the Antichrist in the Old Testament. And what happens is, when he takes them down there, the Bible makes it clear that these are kids of the king's seed. Every one of these kids, at least Daniel, is in the line of Christ. And the devil, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar being his parts, Babylon being his power, 
wants to destroy that. So he takes these kids in and he says that every day the Nebuchadnezzar wants to give them a daily proportion, portion of the king's meat. And going in and studying that would be the meat that is dedicated to the idols. And it just simply represents all of the filth and ungodliness of their religion, of Baal worship, and how that they want. And I'm telling you something. This world every day has a daily portion for you. And most people slop it up like pigs eating slop. I ain't kidding you. Okay. Now, with that little basic intro there, let's look at our four here. Now, verse 30, it says, A lion which is the strongest among beasts, and turneth not away from any. Now, we all know that lion is the king of the beast. Lion makes great movies. Lion king, you know, and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, lions are very stately. They're very beautiful, and they're very powerful. And, uh, you know, so we say that the lion is the king of beasts. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a statement that goes along with everything that they are. Now, here's your first counterfeit. In Revelation 5.5, 5, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, seeking whom he may devour. So both are likened to lions. And the question is, can you tell the difference between the two? Now, in the world today, they cannot. In most of the religions today, including Baptists, they cannot. The neo-evangelical world hasn't got a clue. Obviously, the rest of the world is completely out in the dark. And, uh, you know, they cannot see the difference of the real lion versus the counterfeit one. And, of course, that's just uh, the way it works. Now, the devil in his in the world will work two ways. He, he, he manifests himself as an angel of light. And he does this through religion. And he does this in America, Europe, you know, Central, South America, through the Roman Catholic Church, in Europe, through the Lutherans, the Episcopalia, the Church of England, and all that crowd. So in, in America, he does it through the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons and the Neo-Evangelical Charismatics and all that crowd. He counterfeits himself in that way as an angel of light. But in the third world countries, places like in Africa, Haiti, in South America, he comes on as a roaring lion and he holds them in the fear and superstition of witchcraft, voodoo. Uh, when I was uh, in, in South America, in Rio, uh, a number of years ago, and I had a whole group of people. I think there's probably people in our church that were with me on that one. And uh, we were down there in Rio, and I was, we were doing discipleship, teaching the largest church of about 25,000 people uh, how to disciple. And we were staying in Rio, and they put us up on a, on a over, it was beautiful with hotel. It was way up on the top of the deal here. You could look out the bay and everything. And uh, word got out that we were Christians and we were, you know, we were here teaching the Bible. And uh, every night, if you'd go out on your little terrace and look down, the road kind of wound around down, and there was the area down here, a little marketplace, you would see that all of the Satanists and all of the witch doctors 
uh, were ringing the hotel with little candles and doing their chants to stop us from doing whatever we were doing. When you would run in the morning, uh, you would see all kinds of dead chickens laying down there where they were sacrificing chickens and everything, you know, trying to stop us. And that's the way the devil works in third world countries, like a roaring lion. He holds them in fear. You go to Haiti sometime, and Haiti is absolutely uh, taken over by the devil as a roaring lion. I sent teams down there one time, and they had a, got into the airport, Port-au-Prince, and then they had to drive about eight hours uh, to, a, um, to the mission station. And so they rented a van. I had about, uh, oh, I don't know, eight or nine. I wasn't with them. Eight or nine uh, young single guys and gals. And they were going down there to do discipleship work too. And the missionary told them that whatever you do, you're going to pass through this town. He says, do not, under any circumstances, go through this town at night. He said, it is the demonic hub of, and he says, outside the city, you're going to see the scariest, ugliest tree you ever saw in your life that everybody equates as being haunted. Now, we know it's not haunted, but it's demonic. And he says, do not get stuck in that city. Anyway, so they're going through the city. This is a true story. They're going through the city, and it's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and it gets dark down there about 6, 6.30. And so they've got to hightail it through that thing, and they got, they got to go right past this tree on the road. And as they go past this tree, their engine stops. The car dies right there in front of that tree. And they tried everything in the world to get that tree together. Now, if I had been there, that would have been the time to break out the Uzis and the M16s and put up a position and hold the line. But they didn't have any of that. So their greatest asset was prayer. So they, all the people got on the ground and just started praying and prayed and prayed and prayed. You couldn't find anything wrong with the car. Prayed and 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 prayed. After about an hour, somebody got in and the car started right up and off they went and they got out of that town. I'm telling you, that's how they do it. and That's how he does it. He comes in a sophisticated society as a comely religion, proportion. And he comes down in the third world countries and the undeveloped countries, and he comes as a roaring lion holding them in fear. And verse 30 says, he turneth away from none, or any, it says. Uh, he has complete control. Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that he's called the God of this world, and he is. And no power on earth can stop him at this point in time. But there is one coming that's going to stop him, but not today. Now look at verse 31. Here's our second one. The greyhound. And then it says, and a he-goat also. And then it says, and a king against whom there is no rising up. Now there's three things here. We want to look at these, each one of these. First one is a greyhound. Now the greyhound is the fastest dog alive. If you would go, you know, they have horse races. Uh, most people don't know that they have dog races. And the dog races are all greyhounds. And uh, you go there and you bet on them just like you do uh, horse races. And the, in the, in the greyhound is such a fast dog that when the uh, bus line uh, wanted to show you how fast they were going to get you wherever you were going, they called it a greyhound bus line with a big greyhound on the side of it. And a greyhound will represent the speed by which the Antichrist moves through the world to take over just in three and a half short years. So he's likened to a greyhound because a greyhound is associated with speed. 
Now, I told you that in the New Testament, there's five types of the Antichrist. That's like there's 18 types in the Old Testament. And uh, the fifth type was Adolf Hitler. And a couple of weeks ago on a Thursday night, uh, I gave you and showed how that his uh, uh, National Socialist Party card number was 555. In fact, John Busquette printed them up. There's some back there. You can actually get a picture of it. He, he photographed it and, and, and printed it off back there. And 555, because the next one coming is going to be 666. And so, uh, but he is the last type of the Antichrist in the 20th century. I mean, there's other guys that do things, but on a major scale, he is the last one. And in 1939, he invades Europe. And when he invades Europe, uh, he takes, in just three or four weeks, he defeats France, he takes the Netherlands, he goes in and takes Belgium, and he knocks off Poland. And a little bit later on, shortly thereafter, he takes Denmark and Norway, and he defeats both those countries in four hours. But he took France, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Poland in three or four weeks. His attack mode was called a blitzkrieg, which means lightning war. And he took all of those countries through a tactic of blitzing them in a lightning fashion and took them all. And in, when the Antichrist will conquer the world, he'll have his own blitzkrieg. And he'll take this world in a storm. Uh, and we'll see that just a little bit more as we get into it. Then the third thing here is the he-goat. And uh, you'll find that uh, as a he-goat or a ram, they're called, uh, it's called, the technical name is a he-goat, that's a male goat, but then they also call it a ram. And they call it a ram because if you've ever been rammed by one, you know why they call it a ram. Uh, they'll butt you and put their head down and they got horns and they'll, they'll nail you. And so the Antichrist is likened to that uh, because he's going to knock down all the opposition. He's going to ram his way through. And in Daniel chapter 8, verses 19, 20, and 21, he's actually called the he-goat and, and the ram. And it says in verse 19, And he said, Behold, I will make thee know uh, what shall be in the last end of indignation, for at a time appointed the end, here it comes, shall be. The ram, there it is, which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grisha, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, historically, this is all we're talking about. The rough he-goat is Alexander the Great in the Medes and Persia, or we, all in Daniel chapter 2. But doctrinally, these are all types of the tribulation, and the Antichrist is likened to a ram or a rough goat, he-goat. You also see it in Daniel chapter 11. Verse 21 says, talking about the Antichrist, and his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Well, we've seen that all through Proverbs. And with the arms of a flood shall they be overthrown from before him and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully. That'll be the league made with him will be the first three and a half years. 
He will work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become a, uh, some strong with a small people. He shall enter peaceably even into the fattest places of the province, and he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches. Yea, he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. He shall stir up his power, his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall stir up a battle with a very great mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. Now, Daniel chapter 11 uh, has never fully been unearthed because, as you know, in chapter 12, uh, in verse 4, Daniel's told to seal up some things, so you don't get it all. So there's a lot of a lot of historical, they're not sure about all this, but doctrinally there's no question about it. It's telling what the Antichrist, the issue is of how you coincide them, and nobody's ever really figured that out. He says again in chapter 11 and verse 36, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, uh, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor desire of women, nor regard any God, uh, for uh, he shall magnify himself above all. Now there's why homosexuality is so prevalent today, because when the Antichrist shows up, he's either gay or he simply uh, is uh, connected, because that shows you how satanic the whole uh, homosexuality and lesbian thing is. But here it clearly tells you that he has no regard for women. Neither shall he regard the God of his father, nor, nor the desire. See, the desire, he has no desire for a woman. Nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall be honor of God of forces, and a God whom the fathers knew not shall be honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. And jump down to verse 35. He shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. All dealing with the Antichrist as the he-goat, knocking down, ramming down all the opposition. Then the fourth thing, it says, a king against whom there is no rising up. Now, this king in your Bible will be found in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. And it says there, I saw and behold. Now, the rapture takes place in chapter 4 and 5. And then in chapter 6, we have the Antichrist showing up. And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now this will be in the book of Revelation, our introduction to the man of sin. This is the first time he pops up right after the rapture of the church. And remember now, chapter 1, 2, 3 is the church age, chapter 4 and 5 is the rapture, and then in chapter 6, the Antichrist showing up and, uh, you know, and taking over the world as we just saw in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11. At first he does it peaceably. He does it with flatteries. You're going to find all this information in second, 1 Thessalonians 5, Zechariah 11, 14, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, the devil is such a good counterfeit and imitator of Christ. Notice that there's two white horse riders. 
in the Bible. One of them Revelation chapter 6, one of them Revelation chapter 19. And the devil is such a good imitator because through the higher realm of education and taking the Bible from us, he has destroyed all the references, the face of his garment, that today nobody can tell the difference. And without exception, at every Bible college uh, and seminary, and most of the pastors and most of the teachers of the Bible, the book of Revelation, today will teach you that the white horse rider of Revelation chapter 6 is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ, when he is indeed not. And if you've got an NIV in the footnotes, it will tell you that it's Christ. And, uh, of course, we know that it's not. And all anybody would have to do is compare us. In, for, in verse 2, he has a crown, Revelation 6, 2. But in Revelation 19, 12, the other white horse rider has many crowns. All you have to do is compare the two and then put the book of Revelation in its proper context. And uh, it, they're not the same. Uh, the Bible says that he's a king. He shows up on a white horse as an imitator of Christ, and he's a king who wants to be God. So Job chapter 41, going back to our chapter there, says he's the king of the children of pride. And of course, uh, he wants to be God, so the Bible tells us that he is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And you see in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, where he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, and I will be like the Most High. He wants to be God, and that's what this whole thing is about. And when he comes to power in the tribulation, he's unstoppable until the second coming of Christ. Remember now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that uh, right before he takes over, the rapture of the church takes place, and the Holy Spirit of God now is gone. And now the world is his for seven years. And nobody on earth can or will stop him. He will pull all the world, uh, the whole world together under his influence, comely proportion, and uh, his influence, and they will, uh, they will see him as Christ. And I, this is, and remember now, there's two Christs in the Bible. The word Christ comes from the word anointed one, which is Christos, which means Christ-like. And, you know, people, you know, have a hard time sometimes thinking the devil's Christ. No, <laughs> hello, he's called the Antichrist. There's two Christs in your Bible. And uh, there's the Antichrist, and then three times, Revelation eleven fifteen, Luke 2, uh, 20, and, uh, or maybe 26, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 26, when he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, the Lord's Christ, because there's another one. You know, and as we speak today, the whole religious world right now, you know what, they're all, uh, this is why you find that the neo-evangelical crowd and many, many Baptists are now teaching the fact that there's no rapture. Because if you have no rapture, then it destroys everything that the events are going to be built around to allow the man of sin to come in. And that's why all of these guys from the, uh, from the Catholics to the Neo-Evangelical to the New Orthodoxy to many Baptists to the Methodist, Presbyterian, the Lutheran, Episcopalian, and all of them, they all believe that there's no literal return of Christ, that they're going to get the world in a great, great, great place. And then... Christ is going to come back. And that's exactly what 
is going to, the devil is going to do. He's going to play to that. And right now, as we speak, his church, the Roman Catholic Church, and the whole religious world, the neo-evangelical crowd, the charismatics, and most many Baptists, have are and setting you up for the king against whom there is no rising up. And every Sunday, this morning, probably most of them are doing what we're doing, going out over the YouTube channels or the whatever their mode is of getting it to their people, but they're all doing the same thing. They're giving their people a daily proportion to prepare them. When the rapture takes place and the saved people are gone, they'll look at Him coming just like it was Christ, and nobody will stop Him until the Lord comes back. Now lastly, look at verse 32 and 33. If thou hast done foolishly in lifting up thyself, or if thou hast sought, uh, thought evil, lay thy hand upon thy mouth. In other words, what they're saying here, if you're in the tribulation and you now realize what the man of sin is and you align yourself with him, he says, lay thy hand upon a mouth. It would be like this. Oh, oh my God, what do I just do? See, It's somebody coming to the realization of what they did. Because verse 33 says, Surely the churning of milk bringeth forth butter, and the wringing of the nose bringeth forth blood. Now those are two sure things. If you churn butter, it's going to turn to milk, it's going to turn to butter. And if you grab the person's nose next to you and squeeze it off, you're going to get blood. And those two things are a certainty, and so is the third. So the forcing of wrath bringeth forth strife. In other words, you keep doing what you're doing, and you're going to experience the wrath of God just as surely as somebody churning milk gets butter and somebody grabbing somebody's nose gets blood. Now, I, I say this to you. Verse 32 and 33 kind of goes along with the teaching in the Bible, and it's I've never really taught it because it's so out there. Uh, I may have talked about it individually, but it, there's enough so many things out there in the Bible that are so deep that most people can't even get to them. But verse 32 and 33, if thou hast done foolishly in the lifting up thyself, or if thou hast thought evil, lay thy hand upon my mouth. This kind of goes along with some of the other places in the Old Testament that actually teach, and it looks like, that if you're a Jew, I may be a Gentile too, but I would say for sure the Jews, and you took the mark of the beast, and you didn't know what was going on, and then you hear 144,000 preaching, and this verse says, now you have done foolishly in lifting up thyself, and you recognize what you've done. In the tribulation, it looks like there is a way to get rid of that mark. And uh, it's one of those great unknown things, man, that uh, back in my day, Bible 101, but we've come a long way from then, hasn't we? So it, it looks like there is a process to get rid of that mark uh, that you took if you took it in ignorance and didn't know what you were doing, and that's a pretty heavy doctrine into itself. Now, now here's what he is saying. He's saying you better see and understand who you've hooked up with because just as you churn milk and you get butter, said that, and you wring somebody's nose and you get blood, said that, you're going to force God's wrath upon yourself, the second coming, because of what you've done to His people, and you are hanging out and going with the Antichrist, and you're going to get the strife, second coming. Now, you can see how these four things really, really give us a deeper insight, and we've learned a lot about the devil and the Antichrist today. Now, in closing out this chapter, we want to see four things about the man of sin. <coughs> 
the lion, verse 30, moves with the speed of a greyhound, verse 31, and rams down all the opposition just like the he-goat, uh, verse uh, 32. Uh, he, he, uh, because he is the king of Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 11, and there's no one that can rise up against him. And this chapter is an incredible chapter of, of, of putting it all together and how it ends is exactly the way it should end and putting everything in a perspective for you. The lion, 13 verses, Revelation 13, 1 through 3, is brave and bold. Proverbs 28, 1. The greyhound moves like a streak of lightning. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, the Bible says that I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. The he-goat batters down all the opposition. And the king of our passage uh, is the most prominent character in the entire Bible outside the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, and uh, in the tribulation, the Antichrist will get everybody to join his church. That's what he's going to do. And, uh, you know, and uh, uh, in the last generation, the one we're in right now, Matthew chapter 24, in preparation, he'll get everybody to use his Bible. So it'll just be a hop, skip, and a jump, paving the way for a man of sin by uh, hiding his face of his garment and not showing you his parts, his power, his coming proportion, and people just falling into it. Wisdom and understanding will be your key. And you get that through a King James 1611 authorized version. And, of course, uh, I, I, I've told you many times, the job of every child of God is to, when he gets saved and begins that transformation process talked about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that process is a process of you transitioning from your mindset to God's mindset. And you begin to see everything in life, everything around you in history, today, and in the future through God's mind, the Word of God, and getting His perspective. And, uh, and that will be the understanding and the wisdom that uh, God has for you. It's just that easy. And then the Bible says in Philippians 2, 5, once you do that, then, and you see that, and you understand that, then you let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, we misdefine the battle today. And I understand there's a great battle for the Bible. There's no question about that. But honestly, that battle's already been lost because there's going to be no reversal on that. There's going to be a few pockets of people out there, a remnant like us, who hang on to the right book when the whole world goes the other way. But the real battle for that has been already done. It's over. But the real battle that goes on day after day is the battle for our minds, what we're going to allow into our mind. One or the other will take over your mind. And I want you to notice that there's no instructions without God's mind for a Christian. And that's why so many people get into trouble with the Bible and heresy with the Bible because they won't take any instruction from it. You know, you know you're going to, and, and you know, you'll find people in life who are going to try to tell you, uh, you know, that this mind is not important and it's not vital. And uh, absolutely, it is the most vital single concept of any concept in the Bible. And that person will be a deceiver. And he, as First John chapter 2, verse 18 says, there's many antichrists around us. That guy may not be the, the antichrist, but he'll be an antichrist. What he's teaching is against what Christ told you to do. 
He said in 1 Corinthians 2.16, for who had known the mind of the Lord. Really? Do you know the mind of the Lord? Well, he says that he may instruct him. Now, he's saying that if you don't have the mind of the Lord, you can get no instructions. And then he says, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, the mind of Christ is what you have inside of you because you got saved because Christ living inside you. But then he says, let this, Philippians 2, 5, let this mind which was in Christ, that's God's mind, also be in you. Uh, and of course, you can see that that's the real key. And the battle today is not the battle for the Bible. That battle has been lost. Christianity has lost its Bible, so there's no battle for the Bible today. There's a little skirmishes going on, but on a Christianity scale around the world, that battle's been lost. The real battle today is the battle for your mind. Are you going to have God's mind, or are you going to have the world's mind? Are you going to get God's wisdom and understanding through the instructions of His mind? Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than mine. Are you going to get that, <coughs> or <coughs> are you going to go <coughs> with the wisdom of men and just be and do uh, whatever you're going to do without the instructions of God? So as we close out this chapter, we now see we've come full circle with this. We now have come through every aspect of the tribulation, and we ended with the man of sin. And you've got a lot of information today to be able to go back and lay all that out. i give you <clears throat> probably eight or nine outlines in here if you want to take the time to do it. And I'll help you any way I can. We've got Thursday night. You can call in your questions or ask your questions, and I'll help you put all this stuff together for you. So we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> and then... Uh, will be dismissed, and I encourage everybody to bring your offerings at the meat site at 3 o'clock with Danny, and uh, let's pray. Father.